one of the most tragic attacks occurred in Beirut, Lebanon in 1982. It was an attack upon the Marian barracks there, an attack which killed some 241 U.S. servicemen, people in the military. One of the Marines who survived was in hospital, badly wounded, with tubes coming from various parts of his body and covered in bandages. And so badly wounded, he was unable to speak. But when General Paul Kelly, the commandant of the Marine Corps, visited him in hospital, he signaled to the general that he wanted to write something. And when he was given pen and paper, he wrote these two words, Semper Fi. And Semper Fi is a shortened form of the Marine Corps' motto, Semper Fidelis, the Latin description, Semper Fidelis, which means always faithful. Always faithful. There's a sense in which all believers are called to faithfulness and faithfulness to God, to be always faithful to our God. And this is essentially what the passage is all about. The passage that was we read together here in Hebrews chapter 3, 1 to 6. You may remember, though, the context in which these words occur. The church to which the writer of Hebrew pens this letter was in spiritual crisis. We believe that the writer wrote to believers who were of Jewish descent, perhaps living in Rome, and they had come in for severe testing and trials. We know that they had not yet been so severely tested unto blood, that is, they were not yet being killed. But nevertheless, they were encountering great trials. Some of them had their property confiscated. They were ostracized. And so they were under tremendous pressure. And it seems that these believers began to contemplate turning away from Christ and returning to Judaism, which at that time in the Roman Empire was a religion that was acceptable. And they felt that if they were to return to Judaism, they would find some shelter there, some protection. And so the writer, who is a pastor, well known to these believers, writes to encourage them to continue in their fidelity or faithfulness to Christ. And in order to do that, he will establish in this epistle that Jesus is better than any alternative to which they would want to turn. He tells them in the first few verses of chapter 1 that our Lord Jesus Christ is the exalted Son of God in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1. And in chapter 1, verse 5 to chapter 2, verse 18, he stresses that Christ is superior to angels. Now in that block of material, he also exhorts them to pay attention to the word of the gospel. 
He also takes up the subject of Christ's incarnation and points out that Christ became man in order to fulfill the destiny of his people and that he came to be the champion and the high priest of his people. Now before he pens the other warning which would occur in chapter 3, 7 to chapter 4, verse 16, he calls upon them to faithfulness in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 3. And he calls them to faithfulness by placing before them the superior faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So let's take a look then at these verses here in chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3, 1 to 6. Consider first the call, the exhortation to consider the superiority of Christ with regards to his faithfulness. And so the first thing that we see in these verses is the exhortation to consider the superior faithfulness of Christ. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. He says, therefore, and that is to suggest that there is a link to what preceded these verses. We know that in chapter 2, he has already said that our Lord Jesus Christ was made like his brethren in verse 17, and that he, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest to God, and that this one who has been made like his brethren to be a merciful and faithful high priest to God, because he himself has suffered, he is able to help those who are tempted. Jesus Christ has identified with us. He understands our suffering, and therefore he is able to help us. He says, therefore, since as you have in Christ this one who understands and identifies with you, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. We note first that there are two descriptions of the believers to whom he, he wrote. He calls them first holy brothers. And the term brothers, at least is generic and refers to brothers and sisters. So he's referring not only to the men in the congregation, but also to the women. Therefore now, holy brothers and sisters. They are brothers and sisters of Christ because Christ has identified with them. He has become a man with flesh and blood, just like his, his people. And moreover, they have been set apart. We notice this in chapter 2 and verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one. For what reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. It is precisely because Christ became man, became one of us that we are able to call him brother. And it is precisely because he has set us aside and cleansed us by his blood that we are holy. And so he calls them holy brothers. But secondly, he designates them as those who are partakers of the heavenly calling. So not only are they holy brothers, they are partakers of the heavenly calling. Our Lord Jesus Christ partook of flesh and blood, and believers have partaken of a heavenly calling. Now, this 
heavenly calling is the same calling described by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 1 verse 9 as a holy calling. It is the same as the upward calling that we find in Philippians 3 and verse 14. When Paul calls them partakers of, the, of, the, of this heavenly calling, he's referring first of all to the source of the call. That is, they have received a call from heaven. That every Christian, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, does so because they have received a call from God. Romans 8 tells us that those whom God foreknew, for he predestined, and those whom he predestined, that God called. And those whom he called, he justified, and that those who are justified, he glorified. But all of us, if we are to be Christians, must receive an internal, powerful call of God. That call is synonymous with regeneration. God calls us into salvation. It is a powerful summons. It is like the summons that the Lord issued to Lazarus when Lazarus was dead. Lazarus, come forth. And the call of God to us, which comes from heaven, is a life-giving call. That is, it imparts life to the people of God. And so, uh, the writer of Hebrews says that they are holy brethren, holy brothers and sisters, and they are partakers of a heavenly call. They have heard a call from heaven which unites them to Jesus Christ, brings them into fellowship with Christ, and makes them Christians. The call of God goes out in the Word, in the preaching of the Word, but it is energized by the Holy Spirit, and it's saved. It is a saving call. But when he tells them that they are partakers of the heavenly call, it does not merely refer to the source from which they have received the call that is from heaven or from God himself, but it also refers to the destination to which they have been called. This heavenly call means that God has called them from heaven, but that God has called them unto heaven. It is a heavenly call. It is a call to heaven. And in the book of Hebrews the writer would speak then of this call, this eschatological destination heaven, in terms of the place where Christ is already, already resident and reigning. It is a call to future glory in chapter 2, verse 10 of this book. It is the same as the heavenly country and the heavenly Jerusalem. And so the writer says, but now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. Or, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. Now this twofold description of the believers, they are, first of all, holy brothers, and they are partakers of the heavenly calling, reminds them that their destination does not terminate here on earth. That when they die, they will enter into the heavenly Jerusalem, into glory, into the very abode of God himself. They are partakers of a heavenly call, called from heaven by God and called on to heaven. Having described them as holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, he comes now to the main verb that is there in verse 1. He says, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Consider. 
And this verb, consider, means to carefully observe, to ponder. It occurs, for instance, in the gospel when Jesus, speaking to the disciples, telling them that they must not give careful attention to observe the speck in their brother's eyes while they ignore the plank in their own eyes. It means to consider, to, be, to bring the mind to bear with deliberate and prolonged attention to Christ. He says, consider Christ. Notice that he describes the Lord Jesus Christ with two designations, which is a pair with what he does with the believers. They are holy brethren, they are partakers of the heavenly calling, but now he describes Christ as the apostle. Consider the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Christ is called apostle, and the term apostolos simply means to be sent. Christ is the premier, the chief apostle, the one who has been sent by God to proclaim and to reveal the will of God. He is the apostle, the heavenly apostle, the one who comes from God with the message of God. And in Hebrews 1, he makes it very clear that Christ stands then as one sent above all whom have been sent. God, who at various times and in various ways spoken in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he is appointed heir of all things. And so he is the one preeminently sent by God with the message of God to his people. But he also describes him as the high priest, the one who makes atonement for his people, who offered himself as a propitiatory sacrifice to God. He is the one who brings the people to God. And in a sense, then, these two terms refer to Christ as one who represents God because he's an apostle from God, but he's also a high priest who represents the people of God to God. And so he describes him, he says, consider, consider him. Consider him, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And of our confession means the one that we profess, the one we confess, the one who we believe in and the one who we claim and proclaim. So consider him, reflect upon him, ponder him. But what is it about Christ that they must ponder? Well, verse 2 goes on, and we are reminded there, it says, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Here we come to the nub of the issue. For the writer wants these believers in Rome to bring their minds and their thinking to dwell upon Christ. But that aspect of Christ that they must dwell upon is the faithfulness of Christ. For he says, who was faithful to him, that is to God, who appointed him. The term faithfulness occurs Two times. We, here we have it in verse 2, and it occurs again in verse 5. In fact, faithful, piston, occurs in verse 2. It is the first word in the Greek, and therefore it is emphatic. It's telling you that this is what the writer wants you to think about Christ. When you think about Christ, he wants you to think of Christ's faithfulness. That's how the verse begins. Faithful he was to him who appointed him, 
as Moses also was faithful in all his house. Now the writer of Hebrews will stress throughout this epistle that Christ is indeed faithful. That is, he is true and faithful. The, the Greek term piston is really, a, in fact, it conveys the same meaning of the Hebrew term that is translated amen. It means to be true, to be reliable, to be trustworthy. And Christ was faithful in the sense that he was true, that he was, that he was reliable and trustworthy. And this notion of Christ's faithfulness, reliability, and trustworthiness permeates Hebrews. In fact, the writer will talk about Christ's faithfulness even where the term pistis does not really occur. The concept is nevertheless there. So for instance, he will portray Christ as faithful who trusts in God. In chapter 2 verse 13, he will tell you that Christ faithfully identified with his people but did not sin. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin in Hebrews 4.15. Christ was faithful in that he faithfully obeyed the will of God. Therefore, he says, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offering and sacrifice for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of this book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. All these, his trust in God, his identifying with us without sinning, his obedience to the will of God are evidence and marks of his faithfulness. But when he says consider Christ who was faithful, he's calling upon us to consider Christ's faithfulness as an apostle because he's already described him in verse 3. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him. And so in the, the way in which Christ was faithful to God was in the task of an apostle once sent to proclaim the word of God and as a high priest to die and to pay for the sins of the people of God. The most, or the clearest statement of Christ's faithfulness as an apostle one of the clearest statements is found in John chapter 12, 49 to 50, where Jesus talks about his ministry as a prophet, as one who has come from God. He says, For I have not spoken of, on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know his commandment is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. He's an apostle. And he only proclaims the things that he hears from God his Father. Only the things that God has given him to speak. But he was not only faithful as an apostle who only spoke what he heard from God. He was faithful as a high priest. And that is a point that is made in chapter 2 verse 17. Therefore, we told, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make proposition for the sins of the people. So the first thing we note, then, is the exhortation, to consider Jesus Christ and to consider him particularly in his faithfulness as the apostle and the high priest of his people. But in verses 2 and following, at least verse 2b and following, 
we notice then a comparison. We move from an exhortation to consider Christ to a comparison between the faithfulness of Moses on one hand and the faithfulness of Jesus on the other hand. He, he reminds us, he says of Christ, he was faithful to him who appointed him as, and here's now the comparison, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. He says, I want you to consider Christ and consider his faithfulness. But right here in verse 2, he interjects this comparison between Moses and Jesus in terms of faithfulness. The writer does not disparage Moses. He does not look down on Moses. He says Moses was faithful. And the reason he alludes to Moses, it is precisely because Moses was the most revered figure in Judaism. In fact, if you were to read someone like Joseph ben Sira, who wrote in 180 BC, that is before Christ came into the world, he would consider Moses as one who enjoyed honor, he says, in the eyes of all the living. That's what Joseph ben Sira says. He says that Moses enjoyed honor in the eyes of all the living. That everybody honored and revered Moses. Now, that, of course, is an exaggeration because there were people in the, in, I mean, Romans, for instance, who did not, know about, did not know a word or a thing about Moses. But Moses was revered. He was viewed as the greatest human being. And for these who were thinking of going back to the law, they thought of Moses as tremendous, as great, as the paragon of virtues, one to be imitated. Now Christ comes along, or, or rather the writer says, consider Christ. He doesn't say consider Moses. And he's going to tell you why Jesus Christ is set as the example for them of faithfulness. He admits that Moses was faithful. And when he says that Moses was faithful, he's now referring to Numbers 12 and verse 7. Because in Numbers 12, we, of course, know the story of Miriam and Aaron who rose up and rebelled against Moses' leadership. I mean, they, Moses had married an Ethiopian woman and they were annoyed with him. But we also found out that they spoke to Moses and saying, has God not indeed spoken to us? Has he, has he spoken to you also? And the Lord heard and called them out. And the Lord said then, in Numbers 12 and verse 7, the Lord says that Moses is faithful in all his house. While the children of Israel wanted to return to Egypt, while they complained about manna, and they didn't think very well of what manna, because manna fell from heaven. God fed them with manna for 40 years, but they didn't like it. You know, they call it manna, meaning, what's that? They didn't quite like it. If they go call the thing, what's that, means they didn't like manna. Moses was not one of the complainers. He didn't rebel against God. He was faithful. And so God identified him as faithful. And the writer of Hebrews says, Moses was faithful. But though Moses was faithful to God, and Jesus Christ was faithful, he stresses, the writer that is, that the faithfulness of Moses and Jesus are not to be seen on equal terms. In verse 3, he says, Jesus was worthy of more glory than Moses. Why does Jesus then deserve more glory than Moses? In answering the question, he draws an example from everyday experience. And he says that a person 
who builds a house deserves more honor than the house. And then he goes on to say that God then ultimately is the one who builds all things. But the clear implication is that Jesus Christ is superior to Moses and deserves more honor than Moses because he, along with his father, is the source and the origin of this house. And the house refers to the family of God, the people of God. And so, in verse 3, for this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who builds all things is God. Our Lord Jesus Christ is portrayed in chapter 1 of Hebrews as equal with the Father. And it is he along with the Father who brings the people of God into existence. So, so what he's saying is that you must look to Christ because he's greater than Moses, because he's the one who is the source of the people of God. But the decisive comparison between Moses and Jesus in this passage occurs in verses 5 and 6. He says, and indeed Moses was faithful in all his house, that is in all God's house, that is amongst the people of God, as a servant, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken after. But Christ, a son over his own house. There's much here to unpack, and I'm going to do that briefly. What's the distinction between Moses and Jesus? Why should Jesus then be the example of faithfulness? Because he's the one who brings the people of God into being? Yes. But he compares and contrasts Moses and Jesus. First of all, he says Moses was faithful in God's house. Moses was faithful as one of the people of God. He belonged to the house of God. He belonged to the family of God. And it is in that context as one who was called by God and belonged to the people of God that he was faithful. He was faithful in God's house, amongst God's people. And he was faithful in a specific sense for a testimony of the things which should be spoken afterwards. In other words, he was faithful as a prophet. That is, he bore testimony to future realities and particularly the reality of the coming of Christ. In Acts chapter 2, we are reminded in verse, in chapter, Acts 3, verse 22, we are reminded, for Moses truly said to the fathers that God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. You shall hear him in all things and whatever he says to you. Moses then was faithful. He spoke of things to come, and particularly he pointed to Jesus Christ as the ultimate prophet. So Moses was faithful in God's house. But he says, secondly, and faithful as a servant, but he says, Christ was faithful not as a servant, but as a son. He's a superior, eternal son of God. Secondly, while Moses exhibited faithfulness within God's house, Christ manifested his faithfulness over his house. That is, Christ's faithfulness is of a different level and class. Because Moses was faithful because he served God in God's house. But Christ was faithful as a son who ruled over the house of God, over the family of God, over the people of God. God had called Christ to be the leader of his people, to make him the champion of the saints, to defeat the devil and death as we find in chapter 2 to make atonement for their sins. He was the one whom God sent to establish a new covenant 
to protect his people, to intercede for them, and to lead them to glory. And Christ has done everything and done everything perfectly. And because of his status as son, and because of the perfection of his faithfulness, he is superior to Moses. You see, Christ's faithfulness is superior to Moses because while faithfulness is a duty of a servant, faithfulness for the Son is an expression of infinite love. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ did an offered sacrifice to God, did the will of God because he loved his Father. That's the fundamental reason. There was no compulsion, no fear, no other reason than love for God the Father and for his people. And so he, because of his superior state as a son, because of the perfection of his life, and because of the love that motivated his faithfulness, his faithfulness was far superior. And that is the reason the writer holds him up and says, I want you to look at Jesus. I want you to look at the faithfulness of Jesus, greater than Moses, who was merely a servant in God's house, but Christ was son over God's house. Well, what have we seen? We have seen an exhortation to consider Christ. We have seen a comparison between Moses and Jesus in terms of their faithfulness. But in verse 6, in the latter part of verse 6, we see the significance, the significance of Christ's faithfulness. And here the, the writer will tell us that Christ has been lifted up before us as a model of faithfulness for believers to imitate. And so verse 6, he says, But Christ is son over his own house, whose house we are, that is, we belong to his family, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Why does he go through the trouble of showing us the faithfulness of Christ? Why does he go through the trouble of comparing him to Moses and saying that he is superior to Moses? He's a son over the house of God. It is because he wants us to imitate Jesus in his faithfulness. He clarifies that believers are God's house. They belong to God's people. They are members of God's family. But then he says in verse 6, whose house we are if we hold fast, if we cling and cleave to the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. What he does here is that he links membership in God's family with holding fast. Let me be clear. What he's not saying, he's not saying that you become a member of God's family. That is, you become a Christian by holding fast to confidence and to rejoice in hope. What he is saying, however, is that the evidence that you are a member of God's family is that you will cling and cleave to your confidence and your hope. In other words, he's saying the evidence that one is truly a member of God's family is that that individual perseveres. And this language, you see, of holding fast to confidence and holding fast to hope is essentially a call to persevere. They are to hold fast. First to confidence. And the term parousia simply means boldness in the first century. It refers to frankness, outspokenness, and plainness of speech. The Roman world were quite enamored with their parousia, the ability to speak politically and to speak on any issue. 
And the writer says that we are to hold fast to our parousia, our confidence, our boldness. And the, the boldness that we have, however, is a boldness which enables us to come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us. But this boldness that we have to draw near to God and to stand before God, this boldness is rooted in the sacrifice of Christ. And so the writer in chapter 10 of Hebrews says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, the only reason you and I may dare come in the presence of God, the only reason we have confidence in him and we do not need to cringe and hide, it is because of Christ's blood which covers us, which forgives us, which washes away our sins. And so our boldness and confidence that we have before God comes through the redemptive work of Christ. The second object to which they must hold is their hope, the hope in which they boast. And this hope is a hope of glory. It is a hope that transcends this life and awaits the coming of Christ. Now the writer says, I want you to consider Christ. I want you to consider his faithfulness as an apostle and high priest, and I want you to imitate him. I mean, I want you to persevere in confidence in God and hope in the life to come. The New Testament scholar, F.F. Bruce, says, nowhere in the New Testament, more than here, do we find such a repeated insistence on the fact that continuance in the Christian life is the test of reality. Continuance in the Christian life is the test of reality. In some then, they must hold firmly to their confidence and to their hope. For by so doing, they prove that they belong to God. The Roman philosopher Seneca, who was the tutor of Emperor Nero, although when you look at Nero's wicked life, you wonder what he ever learned from Seneca. But Seneca was the tutor. He tutored Emperor Nero. And Seneca tells a story of a noble man somebody quite wealthy in Roman society, who invited the Roman emperor, Augustus, to dinner. And during the dinner, one of the slaves who was serving the emperor and this nobleman was a little child, a little boy. And in the process of serving the emperor, Augustus, and this nobleman, this little boy broke a crystal glass. And the nobleman was so angry, he ordered his soldiers to take the little boy away and to throw him into a tank filled with very large and hungry fish. And as they dragged the little boy out, he began to struggle and eventually he broke free and he prostrated himself at the feet of Emperor Augustus, pleading not that he should live, but that he should not die in the manner that the noble man had prescribed for him. The emperor Augustus was shocked, and he ordered that the child should be set free, and that every crystal vessel in the house of this noble man should be smashed and thrown in the fish tank. Because he believed the life of a child was worth more than a cup, regardless of how valuable it was. For Emperor Augustus, 
a child who did not even belong to him was more valuable than any wealth that one possessed in the world. And when you come to this passage, you begin to see that God has placed an enormous value upon us because we are not just children, but we who are believers have been dignified and blessed. We are called brothers with Christ. We are called partakers of the heavenly calling. And we are called his house, his family. We relate to God because we are his children. And there is nothing in this world that is more valuable than a child of God. And if you are a child of God, there is nothing in this life that can be compared to you in the eyes of God. You are of value. You are loved. And you need to know who you are. You are God's own. You have been set apart for him. You are not merely a servant, but you are a son and a daughter of the heavenly king. That must be something that you dwell upon. But not only does the passage remind us how valuable we are as children of God, the passage calls you and me to faithfulness. To faithfulness. We live in a world where faithfulness is a bygone concept, not very well known. Years ago, someone would tell you, I'm a Ford man. I only drive Ford or Chrysler or something like that. My dad drove Ford. I'm going to drive Ford. People would work in a job for 50 years. In fact, nowadays when you, when you think of working in the job you are, you, you don't want to think of being there for another 30 years or 40 years. And it seems that the people for whom you work probably don't even want you to be there for another 40 years because they want somebody younger and probably more knowledge and they can pay less. And even in marriage, faithfulness is not understood. People find it conceivable that you should be married for 60 years. They find it inconceivable you should be married for 10 years. And later on in life, when we become a little bit older, they trade us like an old car for a new model. That's the way the world works. We do not understand and appreciate this notion of faithfulness, of reliability and trustworthiness. But the passage reminds us that we are to be faithful. The writer says, consider Christ, who was faithful to him who appointed him. He was faithful to God, even though his faithfulness to God cost him everything. It cost him his life. He was strung up on the cross. He was shamefully and painfully crucified. And yet he remained steadfast in the most difficult hour. No wonder John could refer to Jesus as the faithful weakness, the firstborn over the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. And you and I must look to Jesus and consider his faithfulness. He does not ask us to give Christ a passing glance or a momentary thought, but he says, consider him. You see, if you and I are to be genuinely the people of God, we must have a model before us, and the perfect model of faithfulness is Christ. We are called to be faithful, first and foremost, in our commitment to Jesus Christ, in our commitment to the gospel. Now, this will require all our attention. It will require resoluteness in the face of opposition. We see many who come into the church 
And after a few years, they become tired. They say, this is not for me. They turn back. Like Demas, they have gone back into the world. But if you are a Christian, you are called to be faithful to Christ. Consider Christ. You have made a commitment and a profession. You've gone to the waters of baptism. You have made a stance in the world for Jesus. Don't turn back. Don't give up. Don't run away from your, your faith and your commitment to Jesus Christ. Be faithful to him. Be faithful to your calling. Be faithful to the task God has given you. If he has given you a, a task to play or to sing or even to sweep the floor of the church building, be faithful in everything that God has given you to do. Be faithful to Scripture. Be faithful to the will of God as it is revealed. Be faithful in worship. I was amazed. <laughs> Going back to the Caribbean and hearing people, comp- pastors really, not people, pastors complaining about the church members. What's their complaint? As soon as the cloud appears on the horizon that's dark, it seems the Christians think, well, you know what, it's going to rain today, I shouldn't go to church. Amazingly, they don't say the same thing when they have to go to work. But when it, on a Sunday, when they see the clouds in the sky, they think, well, you know what, it's going to rain. I can't go to church. It would be terrible if I get wet going to church. And so it is. There's a lot of traffic on the road. We think, well, I think I better stay home. It's going to snow. <laughs> well, I think I need to stay home. It's going to rain. I can't have my toes wet going to church. We've got to be faithful. We've got to be consistent. Why? Because Christ has set a model for us of faithfulness to God. And even though it is difficult, and even though it is trying, you must remain consistent and constant in your faith in Jesus Christ and in your faithfulness to him. You must not give up under pressure. You must not give out. And the reason this is so important it is that the only way that you and I will ever enter into glory it is by remaining to the end. It's not a matter of whether we started well, but oh my God, that we end well. I've been traveling this Christian journey for more than 40 years. It has not been because of my resolution to remain faithful, but because of God's constant supervision of my life and care. You to remain faithful, not in your strength, but by relying upon the grace of God. You see, there are those who are like the seed that fell on the rocky ground, which sprang up. But when the heat of the day came, they withered. There are those Christians who will profess Christ today, but when the world begins to turn on the pressure, they wilter, they wither, and they turn away. You're to rest in the grace of God. You're to keep your eyes on Jesus, who was faithful to his Father. And you're to keep your eyes upon Christ as the premier example of faithfulness. And you're to say to God, give me the grace that in all of my life I might be consistent, that I might run this race to the end. That when the roll is called up yonder, that I may be there. Because the reason that we are running this race, we are running it to win. We are not in this race to lose. We aren't doing what we're doing because we don't have anything to do with our time. We're doing it because we want to win. We want to be there at the end. We want to be there when there's a division between the sheep and the goat. And we want to be on the right side. 
So run this race to, to win. And the way to do so is to run it looking unto Jesus, trusting in grace, who says to you, my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient and my power is made perfect in weakness. We have not got the staying power. But oh, in Christ, resting and depending upon his grace, you who are here and our believers will remain to the end because of resting on grace. You may not be saved, and so the Lord is not calling you to faithfulness. He's calling you to faith, to put your whole weight, to rest upon the finished work of Jesus Christ, to trust Christ who came into the world and died for our sins and rose again. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If you turn from your sins and trust Christ, you'll be saved. And then now live this life of faithfulness through grace for the glory of God. Amen.